0: And we begin with, good day, sir.
1: <laughs> Geeks come in all shapes and sizes, um, and that uh, they come into all kinds of things. <laughs>
0: uh, I was thinking more about the Satanic Panic.
1: By the scholar Gary Gygax. Well, wait, hold on. I said good day, sir. Not defending Roman
0: slavery by any no, stretch, by- but. God, that's bad. Let them
1: vote. Fuck off.
0: When historians, and especially British historians, yeah. want to get cute. Oh, it's, it's in there. Uh, okay. it,
1: it is not worth the journey.
0: seventh graders and um i am now coming to terms with with the fact that i am i am very very happy teaching sixth graders as a group like i'm really happy with the students i'm teaching because they're they're still little kid enough Mm -hmm. that that i can get away with messing with their heads in a way that it's harder to do with 7th graders which is which is way too much fun number yeah. 1 and number 2 um i i they're just they're just they're sweeter they're just they're still they're still kids now the the Damn. part of teaching 6th grade that i don't like so much is the 7th grade curriculum is basically my dream curriculum it's like oh hey oh yeah what, what part of world history <laughs> is ed like a yeah. total madman about fall oh, of rome yeah, through all that of china be, <laughs> yeah, fall of rome through the the early modern period up until the french revolution like oh okay that's my jam like there we go we're good and in the middle of that by the way we're going to talk about how geography affects culture Mm -hmm. and we're going to spend a shit ton of time you know introducing kids the idea of primary and secondary sources and is Mm -hmm. this reliable and like let's have fucking arguments about these things and like oh my god right and now i'm in the sixth grade curriculum Mm -hmm. which is not that (laughs) <laughs> no, it's it's
1: it's from the beginning of you know what you could do though is point from out the to beginning
0: them, from the beginning of time.
1: Yeah, you could you point know, out to them though that it's all about beer, and I think you'd have fun with that once yeah, you have permanency.
0: One, once, yeah, next year <laughs> I can start doing because you could because, talk about
1: fermentation you know, and how you have to wait around. And yeah, and, you got to
0: sit around for a yeah. while. Yeah, that you know what that's that's a whole that's a whole angle that I'm gonna have to hit on, but. Yeah, so I, I have now spent uh, the last three days of my teaching life, which I will never get back, working with, with three periods of sixth graders on, on how to navigate an atlas in the front of their textbook. Mm. And here's the thing, I'm going to have to spend at least three more days, because if I don't, the rest of this year is going to be a goddamn nightmare. Yep. Like I am I am going to be yeah. I'm going to be so fucking frustrated so many times mm-hmm. if I if I have to like spoon feed them for the rest of the year that no no we're this is China China is in Asia like I'm so okay. now I'm going to have to spend three days finishing the coaching on this mm-hmm. and if you ever want to think of a thankless task like well, okay, thankless is the wrong word, because eventually this is going to pay off into something. But a a a feels-like-it's-Sisyphean mm-hmm. task, it is getting 10- and 11-year-olds to look closely enough at a printed map to, for example, find where Patagonia is mm-hmm. in the world. That was one of the questions I gave them. F- which continent is Patagonia on? Mm-hmm. And we've talked about physical versus political maps. Patagonia is a physical feature. I mean, speaking very broadly, it's a physical region. It's not a country. So you're going to want to use the physical map. Right. Look for it. You're going to have to look like Mm -hmm. you're really going to have to look because the print Mm -hmm. is small. But then figure out which continent it's on. Tell me. That's all I need to find out. Right. Oh, my God. I, I. I am a harrowed man. (laughs) Like like the amount, the amount of, okay, I'm going to give you all a hint. If a continent does not touch the Southern hemisphere, Patagonia is not on that continent. Mm -hmm. And like, and that still was not like, they still were struggling. And I, and on the one hand, part of me was like, Oh my God, just like seriously scan the fucking maps. On the other hand, part of me was like, "I really should be trying to find a way to coach them on this, but I really don't know how to do it without spoon feeding them the fucking answer." Like, what do I do? Oh, I've got a suggestion for that. When you're ready, okay? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, off, off, out of, out of here. Because up to you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I don't, I don't want to take any more time away from what we're, what we're talking about. But like, that's what I've been struggling with the last three days. So if I sound a little bit haggard. That's what I've been doing, and that's me. And who are you? And what have you been up to?
1: Well, I am Damien Harmony. I am a. This is the last year I'm doing it. Latin teacher, as well as a U.S. history teacher, uh up here in North California. I love Northern how California. you keep
0: coming up with ways to say that differently.
1: <laughs> well, it's yeah, admirable. It's, yeah, uh, it's on hospice, and it should have been. It's it's on a respirator and a ventilator, and all the yeah. things. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it should have. It should have been put out to pasture a while back, but you know, it's public education, so equity. Uh, but yeah, I'm up here in the Northern California at the high school level doing that. Uh, the thing that I have to say is that I went to my own kids uh, back to school night. Oh, um, talked last week about your back to school night. I went yeah, to my own yeah. kids back to school night. Uh, my daughter's teacher uh, told a dad joke to which my daughter, uh, I, I find this out at back to school night. I walk in. I'm Damien Harmony, uh, you know, Oh, and you know, where's, where's my daughter sit? And she's like, Oh, you're Julia's dad. Yes, I am. Uh, and he's, she said, um, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I, I told a dad joke today to your daughter, uh, and, or to the class and your daughter just did this. She put her, you know, <laughs> I think we can hear that over the microphone. Yeah. I, I, um, I heard it. Yeah. So she, she head palmed and she's like, Oh my God, like you were, you are just as bad as my dad. You are going to meet him tonight. Um, so, and she said, yeah, so you, you apparently, I'm like, oh, I do it professionally. Hashtag uh, and, dad goals. Right. right uh, come on. But I said, I do it professionally. And, and she kind of laughed. I'm like, no, I'm serious. It pays for Christmas. I run a pun tournament for capital punishment. Uh, it's been going six years. It's the longest running, uh, pun tournament in the world. Uh, which is actually true. Uh, cause we've been going the entire time. Nice. Uh, Yeah. And, uh, and we are international. So, um, this is true. Yeah. So, uh, I I said that and she's like, are you serious? I was like, yeah. She's like, I said, yes, I will email you the flyer. It's,
0: it's fine. So (laughs) (laughs) cool. cool. Building, building your audience. One, one fellow punster at a time.
1: And then to just, uh, you know, drive the point home, I was like, well, where's my daughter sitting? And my daughter was right next to me. And I said, where, where are you sitting? And she says to me, oh, you have to you have to find it. I was like, OK, well, you know, kids all drew their own uh, like self-portraits. Okay. And then I I scanned the room and I just went to to the desk and and she's like, how'd you know from all the way over there? I said, you're the only child your age reading War and Peace and it's on top of your desk.
0: So <laughs> ah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, your so. your reading habit, your reading habits betray you. <laughs> totally.
1: Uh oh, <laughs> you will be pleased. My son is yes. a 7th grader. You will be pleased. Uh, yes. Also at same back to school night, uh yeah, yeah. the his social science teacher told me, "Oh, William got a perfect score in his continents quiz." I was like I was like, "Yeah, well, his love of trains would absolutely do that for him." So,
0: Yeah, that would that would certainly help um that, so. that points in that direction and and can i just say mm-hmm. i i i admire your son deeply yeah like you're yeah. his goals in so many ways and this is just one of them
1: yeah yeah
0: so, so. yeah very cool i am I, I i feel a little better hearing that knowing that somebody's seventh grader <laughs> got a <100% laughs> 100 <of> percent <that wish. laughs> Because, oh, my God. Feel free to
1: rub it in your kid's face now. I, You know like, what? I will. Yeah, I
0: totally will.
1: Yeah. So. All right. So. So, <laughs> so we last left, time we... we talked V, right? Yeah. And I ended yeah. with the a really quick run through the plot that took still yeah. 15, 20 minutes because it's yeah, a
0: galloping, a galloping yeah. run through the plot that took forever because holy crap. So.
1: Yeah. <laughs> what was interesting to me about it was that the Kenneth Johnson's ideology filtered into what he had written so clearly. He names It Can't Happen Here as a massive influence, like in interviews today. Yeah. But Johnson immediately turns it into space fascists because that's what tartakov needed. And in yeah. all his interviews, there wasn't a specific thing that he was pointing to, though he did draw a few aspects of what was happening in the early 80s for some of what happened in the miniseries. So what I mean there is that normally, you know, our zeitgeist absolutely feeds into what we're doing. He already came with a ideology that he was trying to push. Yeah. The trappings of the 80s certainly filtered in, but it wasn't he looked around and then found an ideology. It was he came with the baggage. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah. He was definitely writing from a specific point of view and an understanding conceptually and actually of the menace of fascism. But the dude didn't name much at all from the early 80s, and Reagan represented one hell of a shift rightward that Kenneth Johnson
0: just kind of ignored. Well, yeah, and I actually, you know, thinking about that, Mm -hmm. because in episode three, um, you know, at the same time as Reagan, of course, was Thatcher. Yep. And in British science fiction, and particularly um, Mm -hmm. amongst the people who are responsible for Warhammer 40K, you know, Thatcher was like, "Oh my god, this this is this is the fascist be- all end all." Hmm. Now, you know, I wonder if part of the difference between them and Johnson might have mm-hmm. been the fact that Britain was more nationalized, more centralized economy, had more industries that were uh, that were being managed in a more in a more farther left kind of way to begin with. Like they they oh
1: yeah, that could already be. had
0: the National Health Service they already had right you know they, they had the post-war consensus that was right. okay, you know they they were far more in a middle ground uh, between you know total laissez-faire capitalism and socialist you know democratic socialism
1: yeah, yeah, I, th- I think we're, you've got something there, even though Nixon says we're all Keynesians now, yeah. It you know that well you know you, American Keynesianism versus British Keynesianism is clearly different. Very yeah, you right. know
0: Amer- American American Keynesianism is we're gonna we're gonna pump money into the economy. It's not we're gonna nationalize things.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, you know, I would also say that they were also a lot
0: closer to the Nazis physically. Yes. Yes. So and so there there was more of a specter there mm-hmm. in their in their subconscious. They have we, shit that's bombed out that's still on display. We yes. don't. No, we never did, Mm -mm. which was why, you know, Mm -mm. neutrality was such a powerful movement in this country.
2: But that's literally it.
0: But number one, that's literally it. Number one. And number two, there are some emotional resonances involved in Pearl Harbor. As somebody who rode Mm -hmm. a boat literally past Arizona five days a week for two years going to school as a kid, there are some emotional resonances that are very powerfully different. Yeah. London got bombed. Like and like had to rebuild the Brits and had to rebuild. Yeah. And that's and that's the biggest city in the United Kingdom and that is civilian targets that is that is that is very different from you know we have a lot of military personnel who are still entombed in ships in the bottom of Pearl Harbor and mm-hmm. There are parts of this air force base where they have not torn down the buildings or filled in the bullet holes from the attack.
1: I think some of that's we always we also have so much more room for things, so that Number we can have one, large yeah, pop, memorials. Yeah, population the, density. Yeah, yeah,
0: I mean, certainly that's part of it, but I, I I think there's a very big difference between, um, you know, the Japanese army. And Japanese naval air force uh you know, blew up a fleet of military sailors, yep, versus the Germans came in and just flattened everything. yeah, people had to hide. you know people had to hide underground. you know right. there's there's a very different kind of effect that has on on the memory of those events. And we as a country have always wanted to lionize and glorify our war dead. Yeah, you know, forever since the revolution, and for and for the Brits, no, the Nazis just like killed fucking everybody. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And so there's there's a more immediate kind of peril to that in their yeah. in their national psychology. Yeah, um, no, I, I would, agree. Would be, and this is all you know armchair psych psychologizing, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, and and so I think um, the 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 fact that Reagan to Americans didn't come across as the blatant right wing authoritarian threat that for some Britons, for many Britons, Thatcher was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think I think as a matter of degree and a matter of lived experience during World War Two.
1: I also think effectively it didn't matter because okay, yeah, effectively well, yeah, okay. both yeah. reigned for roughly the same amount of time.
0: Granted, that's true. So, yeah.
1: Now, I think true. there's some other reasons why, uh, you know, um, uh, Johnson, uh, Kenneth Johnson, uh, isn't, isn't specifically calling out Reaganism or anything. Okay. Um, number one, he's not Alan Moore. Uh, and I think that can't be <laughs> understated enough. That can't. Yeah.
0: No, right. uh, number <laughs> Nobody two. Nobody else is. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that.
1: Yeah. So number two, he might not have really felt it as he was living somewhat comfortably as a writer. I mean, I don't think he was making really good mailbox money yet, but he also didn't speak at all of suffering personally and economically either in any of his interviews. He wasn't I like know. I was a starving writer. Third. He works in Hollywood and he has to deal with producers. So getting specific about their patron saint of union busting might be a no, no.
0: Uh, Okay. You know? Yeah. That makes sense.
1: But I'm more than happy to, to point some stuff out because (laughs) we're, you know, know, 40 plus years later, didn't put stuff in there. So we'll go from the least to the most obvious. okay? Okay. So first, right after the title card that states, quote, To the heroism of the resistance fighters, past, present, and future, this work is respectfully dedicated.
3: That shows up. All right. All right. Cool.
1: The very first scene that we see is Michael Donovan as a cameraman covering a journalist while he interviews a rebel during the Salvadoran Civil War. The rebel says, quote, these wounds are nothing, see, compared to all the wounds that they've inflicted on our country. But we're going to we're going to fight them till we win. You got that? We're going to fight till El Salvador is free. So it's not a made up country. It's a real place. And then Donovan affirms that he got it on camera. And right after that, they're attacked by a couple helicopters. They stand bravely against them, and Donovan ends up getting chased in a truck by the helicopter, which he continues to film almost defiantly. And then the helicopter flees in the face of the visitor ship. So that's your first scene. That's your in media ray thing. You know, like it's right
0: there. Right. So yeah, real quick. Sure. Clarify for me. Uh Uh-huh. The the resistance mm-hmm. in El Salvador okay was leftist or were they count or, or were they anti-communist?
1: Funny that you ask. I'm trying uh, to remember in El Salvador, right? Well, I'm about to get into there's... the history of the okay. Salvadoran conflict.
0: Okay. So. Well, there we go. All right.
1: So why is he picking El Salvador as the starting point for this? Well, like you said, yeah. it was in the news. But yeah. in the late 1800s, coffee was king in El Salvador. And it was in over, at, at, like how to put this, it was more than 90% of their economy in the 1800s, late 1800s.
0: Well, because colonialism, high, mm-hmm. okay.
1: And most of that went to the top 2% of the of the country's population. So you've got a Fuck very me. sharp divide. Between the halves and the other 98%. Jesus. Okay. In such a situation, dependent on exports, if you have a Great Depression worldwide, that could make things much worse. Now, given the amount of changes that happened politically in the 1930s, you could see that the candle is burning quickly on both ends. Fascism is really popular to those with money and the power to pay people to use guns to keep them in power with money. And socialism would be really popular with the other ninety percent of the country.
0: Ninety? I'm sorry, ninety-eight.
1: Well, I'm thinking you could hire eight percent to shoot at the other ninety. Oh, okay, fair. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah. So, or at least with a lot of the indigenous people who'd suffered tremendous abuse by those on top, and the uh, and the peasants who'd been kept impoverished going into the Great Depression. That would only make things more stark, and they formed the Central American Socialist Party, which quickly led to an uprising of the peasants against the government in 1932. One really important leader in this effort was a man named Augustine, I'm sorry, Augustine Farabundo Marti Rodriguez, or Farabundo Marti for short, or Marti. There's an accent on the I, a Marti.
0: Marti, okay. Okay.
1: He was the son of a farmer from Teotepetque, Teotepetque. Uh Tepeque, sorry, the Latin is just going to fuck yeah, up I, 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 Yeah, I, I know, but. I know, yeah. Teotepetque, uh, who, who he, he was the son of a farmer and he himself went to university, but he dropped out to fight for the rights of the people because he'd learned in college and likely before that the structure of the government and the economy in El Salvador was immensely exploitative. So see. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Reading ground, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Leftist leftist paradise. Yeah. Yeah. So he renounced it. Uh, (laughs) He renounced the government. And in by 1920, he was getting arrested and exiled by those in power for rising up with students to oppose the system. Of course, when you exile someone of a peasant background in the 1920s for speaking against exploitative governmental and economical policies, they're going to come back. And with a lot more theory than they left with so in 1925 <laughs> i'm
0: sorry i'm sorry I just, yeah. I just pictured them coming back with a backpack full of books right. yeah i had and it under the arm. like and like, like yeah, a yeah. strap of yeah. of
2: yeah uh so
0: and now i got papers assholes <laughs> Look Um, look at these theses. (laughs) All right. Sorry. And
1: yeah, no, it's fine. He comes back in 25 and Marty is a member of the international organization called the All-America Anti-Imperialist League, dedicated to teaching Marxism and Leninism to peasants so that they could liberate themselves and join a world revolution in the 1920s.
0: Because world revolution was like the thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There were a lot of people getting fucked. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Like, it sounds pretty good and, and
0: not and not in the way they yeah. want to be. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And yeah. now this gets Marty excited or I'm sorry, not excited, <laughs> getting fucked. Um, no, it gets him exiled again <laughs> in 1930, but not before he gets nominated for president.
0: Well, because that's the pattern. Right. Like.
1: And of course, he loses that election because he's not around. Um, yeah being in absentia the whole time. And given that the government in 1931 had a vested interest in making sure that someone with such leanings and policy choices didn't get elected. This time he comes back with friends, though, and their movement was cut short by the government and the military. And from there, Marti helps to organize the peasants into a Marxist guerrilla army, which was exacerbated by yet another fall in the price of coffee worldwide. They took on the newly stepped up vice president turned military dictator, Maximilio Hernandez Martinez, who had 30,000 peasants massacred 10 days later. Wait, 30,000? 30, <laughs> 30, this was something called the La Matanza, the slaughter. Because La Matanza is Spanish for the Matanza. And uh, yeah, and, yes. Yeah, and that's... scholars. Scholars are in some agreement about that, but also they they agree that it should be called the slaughter. So, yeah,
0: 30. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm still 000. getting over the numbers. Wow, okay, well, it's because I, of, holy,
1: yeah, it's because of the uprising, uh, the peasant and indigenous uprising in 1932, uh, specifically, uh, the indigenous people called the pipil, P I P I L. Okay. Um, and so, uh, it, now officially it lasted for five months. It really was done by the 10th day with so many dead. Okay. The insurgents maybe killed a total of a hundred people. It's probably closer to 50, but let's, let's give them credit for a hundred. Either way, this feels very Omdurmani to me. Okay. Um, yeah. Among those killed during La Matanza was Francisco Sanchez and Felic- Feliciano Ama, both of whom were hanged. School children were forced to attend the lynching of Amma. Um, And it might be Ama. I didn't the the accent okay. didn't copy over. Um, the slaughter was affected in several ways. Obviously, the hunt and kill efforts for the army uh, putting down an insurrection. Right. But also anyone mm-hmm. found in possession of a machete as that was the most common weapon amongst the people. Um, and then anyone found to have indiz- indigenous features. So think of mm-hmm. these as concentric circles. After machete, it's, do you look indigenous? You... This is how you get to 30,000. <laughs> However, you could, if you had indigenous features, you could present documents proclaiming your innocence to the army. If your paperwork was in order and you were found to have indigenous features, you were killed in groups of 50 in front of the wall of the church. It's
0: much wait, wait, more efficient. Wait, yep. wait, 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 wait. hmm if your paperwork was in order, yep, then you were grouped. So you what you're saying is, it was a racist genocide against the people. Yes. Like, Others
1: had, yeah, yeah. Others had to dig mass graves, uh, and then wow. they were shot into the mass graves. Um, if you owned a house, you were uh, suspect, and you were suspected as being guilty. It was burnt, and then you were killed. Now, right after La Matanza was officially over, the legislature passed a law that gave immediate amnesty to anyone who participated in the killing, in order to quote, restore order, repress, persecute, punish, and capture those accused of the crime of rebellion
3: this year. Yeah. Now, it it yeah. it takes a
0: lot to render me speechless, but wow, mm-hmm. I'm I'm there. Yeah.
1: Like, well, after what? this, after this, Marti was captured, he was tried, and he was executed in short order during La Matanza. His last day was February 1st, 1932. The effort didn't stop in thirty-two, however. More, it set the policy that led to almost totally wiping out the papil. La Matanza set the tone for the next 50-plus years for the government. Now, all of that is to set you up for understanding what exactly the FMLN was, the Farabundo Martí Nacional
2: Liberation Front. They were named after him. Mm. So from
1: 32 to 69, the military dictatorships rotated around, of course, squashing the peasantry to varying degrees. Middle working and peasant class people all began to grow louder and louder over the next 40 years. And then that gets us to July 14th, 1969. See, Honduras and El Salvador started a war over a football game.
0: Yes. Yeah. I remember this. Yes. Yes. now it was called the Football
1: War. It was called the Hundred Years War. Really, it wasn't over football. It was over land reform policies in Honduras and population and wealth issues in El Salvador. Because of those issues, over 300,000 people migrated to Honduras. So you can see why Honduras... Is a lot larger than El Salvador, but it has like half of its population. They're still yeah. going to be upset that 300,000 people have have crossed their borders. Yeah. Um. And at that time, Honduras was all corporated up, like United Fruit Company level of corporated up. Wow. Uh. The U- U.S. intelligence, the State Department, as part owners of corporations, corporated up, like that kind of shit. Yeah. Um. Three years earlier, the United Fruit Company, which CIA
0: owns, client state. Yep. Corporated up. Yeah. Okay.
1: Three years earlier, the United Fruit Company, which owned ten percent of Honduras's land, uh, <laughs> ten you know, percent. Joined... On
0: the one hand, that's staggering. On the other hand, there's a part of me that surprised it's that low.
1: Well, they had interest in other places too. No, oh, yeah, okay. It, it could right. also be a certain ten percent. You know, like yeah, the part that has all the fruit. Yeah. Anyway, the the UFC, the United Fruit Company, uh, joined together with many other large corporations and companies and created the Federación Nacional de Agricultores y Ganaderos de Honduras, or FENAG for short. Shockingly, (laughs) this group (laughs) was anti-campesino. Campesinos are the tenant farmers, anti-peasant and anti-Salvadoran migrant. FENAG... Uh, pressured the president of Honduras to go fuck them all over in order to protect the wealthy landowners in Honduras. So you've got a lot of tension between these two countries, essentially dicking over poor people for the benefit of rich people and foreign ultra-rich people. This meant taking a lot of land for much of the decade in the 1960s from Salvadoran squatters, immigrants, migrants, and gave it to native Hondurans, which makes sense. It's Honduran land, but... This was unclaimed land previously, so then what the hell? First, Salvadorans who were married to Hondurans were especially screwed because, sorry, you don't get this land anymore. Uh, Second, all the other Salvadorans were screwed, and this also meant mass deportations and expulsion from Honduras back into the overly fucked El Salvador with half the land and Mm -hmm. twice the people. Yeah. Yeah. And because FIFA makes everything worse, the two countries were playing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, John Oliver.
1: (laughs) (laughs) These two countries were playing in a two game 1969 qualifier for the World Cup in 1970. Right. Okay. There was a great amount of violence in each capital city when a match was held there. The Hondurans won when they were in Honduras. The El Salvadorans won when they were were in El Salvador. This means that it's tied and you need a third game. That would be in Mexico City. El Salvador's government dissolved diplomatic everything with the Hondurans after the second game because Honduras' government deported nearly 12,000 Salvadorans and had done nothing to secure the safety of other Salvadorans during the riots in their capital during their game. Okay. So there's a lot of back and forth, uh, yeah, and there's a lot of back and forth air force fighting. Interestingly, with the dictator of Nicaragua giving ammunition to the Honduran government,
0: mostly like literally yeah. ammunition, like bullets yeah. and rockets yeah. and what. Re- hmm.
1: And it's interesting because I think this is the only war that I could find where it was 1940s American aircraft fighting against 1940s American aircraft. Really? Yeah. Because that's what their air forces were made of.
0: Well, I mean, okay, the 1960s in Latin America—that makes sense. Now, uh-huh. when you say 1940s Amer- American aircraft, are we talking about Corsairs or Warhawks or like what? Like are we Corsairs,
1: Mustangs, that kind of stuff.
0: Like, oh shit! Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. See, as an aviation guy, uh-huh. I have to look this up because yeah. Okay, but it.
1: They're also I'm bombing still... the shit out of each other's populations. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm gonna have to, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I still Nicaragua was giving supplying ammunition
1: the ammunition to Honduras. Yeah. To Honduras. Yeah.
0: Because they also had some kind of grudge against El Salvador
3: or, or they were like...
1: allied more with Honduras. Yeah. Okay. And Nicaragua was um, their interests aligned more with uh, Honduras's because they were owned by the same by companies. the same
0: corporate masters. Yep. Right.
1: Meanwhile, the Salvadoran army, which had a lot of practice against its own peasantry for the last 40 years, was marching <sighs> successfully toward the Honduran capital. <laughs> uh, this caused Honduras's government to ask the OAS to intervene and call for a truce. And a ceasefire and an eventual peace. The OAS is the um, Organization of American American States. states, Yes. Once the OAS threatened economic sanctions, the Salvadoran army finally withdrew from Honduras. While El Salvador seemed to have come out of the other side of this uh, short war with a victory, the economic and social pressure brought about by the fighting with the new influx of 300,000 of their own citizens back into their country The damaged trade between the two countries and the government's ennui and inability to tend to these folks caused problems in El Salvador that would worsen by quite a bit over the next 10 years. The military came out stronger, but politics skewed more corrupt in the shadow of that. The military-endorsed party, the PCN, the National Coalition Party, won in a very corrupted election in 1972. Resultingly, the Fuerzas, Popula- Fuerzas Populares de Liberación uh, Farabundo Martí began uh, fighting in opposition. So the FLMN. Okay. Other leftist, Marxist, and Leninist groups also sprung up
2: as well. So that gets us to 1973. Do you remember what the big issue in 73 was?
3: Was
2: it
0: an oil crisis?
1: Yes. And that, of course, causes food prices to rise, which, of course, hurts the poor more and Mm. gives more moral backing to the groups that are fighting against a clearly corrupted government. Mm. In 1977, there's more corrupt elections and the government brought brought in paramilitary and military groups to gun down the protesters in San Salvador in numbers around fifteen hundred or so. So fifteen hundred people get killed by the government troops. President uh, General, which that's always a good sign. You have a President General. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Carlos, we
0: we both play mech Warrior. That's that's like so very Merrick. It hurts. Yeah, President General. Anyway, sorry.
1: So uh, Carlos Humberto Romero also okayed the use, uh, specifically of paramilitary privatized death squads in the countryside. Because why not go all in? By 1979, the, no, the amount of people that the government was killing was enough that the Catholic Church denounced the El Salvadoran government, who in turn repressed the priests. Eventually, yes. General Carlos Humberto Romero was put down in a coup in October of 79, which really were the United States, because is this communism? Uh, the coup was a military dictatorship coup of a different stripe than Romero's, but a military dictatorship all the same. That said, Jimmy Carter, the humanitarian that he is, and the U.S. State Department propped the hell out of him because what if the communists came?
0: Because Cold
1: War. Right. By the time that Ronald Reagan comes mm. into office in January of 1981, he's more than quadrupled the U.S. spending to support El Salvador. Uh, or he did. he? That's one of the first things he did. Up to a billion a year by 1984. And because everyone at the top of these coups were military folks who were allied with rich folks, you can imagine a lot of competing interests that were exactly the same. Make sure that you protect our holdings of land and we and we pay you. This this group was called the Revolutionary Government Junta. And it's been my experience that anytime you have a government body called revolutionary anything, they're not. And certainly not in a good way if they are. (laughs) Yeah. The J.R.G. was no different. They wanted to stay in power. However, they were a bit too warm and fuzzy for American interests and for the ultra rightist interest in El Salvador. The, uh, what were they called? The Revolutionary Government Junta, the J.R.G., wanted to redistribute land to peasants on cooperative farms and to nationalize a lot of the growing. Obviously, this doesn't sit well with the uh, private owners, the top 0.1% who owned 77% of the land at the time.
0: Oh, Jesus
1: Christ. Uh Oh, The Salvadoran army, along with several wealthy elites who helped fund them, set up attack and death squads, stepped up their killings and got ready to go to war with this new unreasonable government. The U.S. backed the rightists because that was the only way to stop the communists from taking over the Salvadoran J.R.G. that had been weakened by the rightists.
0: Yeah, this 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 is more complicated than a Japanese soap opera. Yeah. Like, oh, my God.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: Now, this includes helping them stop union strikes in El
2: Salvador
1: oh. and student demonstrations and helping kidnap important leaders
0: on the left. Oh, because, of course, like, <laughs> now, of to course, all of that to all of that, <laughs> like, because in for a penny in for a pound. Yeah. Like, yeah. If now, ghosts, then aliens. Like, I mean, it's all of a piece. Like, yeah. we got to Oh, God damn it.
1: Of course, the government began to respond to rightist military folks by attacking the citizens because they feared a leftist takeover, which would obviously be emboldened by the rightists weakening <sighs> the government in their attempt to stop the leftists. So, <laughs> everybody is beating the shit out of Charlie Brown because they're they're
0: worried well, that Lucy Charlie will take Brown. power. Yeah, <laughs> because Charlie Brown is the only one who's not directly allied to anybody, and oh my god, we got to keep him from lying with anybody right,
1: because fuck Linus. Because. Um, you know, <laughs> And fuck Sally because Schroeder and Lucy are are worried about getting power. And don't get me started on Violet. Um
0: so in now pig pen, we don't even want to like right. let's not even bring him in. Well,
1: this. he's already
0: been exterminated. Uh it's so, okay, right. Yeah.
1: Oh my god. So now both sides have death squads and it's 1980. And by this point, the campesinos, the peasants and the indigenous people of El Salvador have seen nearly 50 years of generational violence against them in the name of not letting the communists win, which is mostly a smokescreen so that whoever's in charge can continue to enrich themselves. Rinse and repeat. And by this point, they say, well, why the hell not? And they form the FMLN in the name of Marti, which Mm -hmm. sees a fair amount of success in the face of such suppression. Oh, you're going to accuse us of being leftist. Let's give that a shot because y'all been giving us a lot of shots. So
0: tequila. Yeah.
1: Some of this is due to the sense. We all
0: use right now. Yeah. God bless it. Okay.
1: Now, some of this is due to the sense of piety that people have about liberation. And some of it is due to not having much to lose, given that they're the target of attacks, regardless of what they do or don't do. And quickly, several villages and neighborhoods become FMLN zones, which leads to the government bombing the shit out of them, killing plenty and not changing the pieces on the board at all. (sighs) In February 1980, Archbishop uh, Cesar Romero, a total badass whose story does not get told enough, um, he he makes it very public what's going on and he wraps it all up in the fact that he's a priest. He called on the Salvadoran soldiers not to follow orders to murder people in March of nineteen eighty. So he's saying, yeah. "Don't kill people." So of course he gets killed during mass the next day by our military. And,
0: and Raúl Julia plays him in a yeah. biopic. Yes, 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 and and yeah, no, and, and a figure who who deserves an awful lot more attention mm-hmm. historically. And speaking as a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it says less than positive things about the church that they have not found a way to canonize his ass yet. Yeah.
1: I I um, do not disagree. I mean, like... me instru- yeah. You know, and the thing <laughs> was, he was a man of books. He he absolutely was not considered to be any kind of a liberation theologist or anything. He was a quiet, no. read your books Catholic. You know, a a man of letters, you know, and yeah. then and then he's like, I can't I can't not speak on this. Please don't like, kill people. And then don't
0: kill don't kill innocent people. This shouldn't be something I have to tell you.
1: Yeah. Now, at his funeral, snipers shot 42 of his mourners.
0: Oh, Jesus.
1: Like, <laughs> see what happens when you stop me one sentence short. You see what happens? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It just, Genuinely you know, sorry, you, but... yeah. You, uh, now you have to deal with the consequences of knowing that. Now it only gets worse from here. Uh, by 1982 and 1983, there's an attempt of the <laughs> FMLN <laughs> to the FMLN tries to get a ceasefire and bring together all the sides to organize. But Ronald Reagan said that this would lead to a communist dictatorship. So, no. Then there's a long insurgency by the FMLN against the government and the rightist death squads. And it's largely a battle between the landed elites with the military and their employee versus a small band of resistance fighters who refuse to cede their country to such people. Their politics are nominal and certainly something that had an appeal, but largely it's resistance against power. In that same amount of time, the FMLN carried out deliberate and organized sabotage missions that fucked the Air Force for a while. They cut it nearly in half with their sabotage. And we're talking close to a thousand arsons and sabotage attacks in a single year.
0: Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's the FMLN even cow.
1: occupied major cities at different times in the year. And they were obvious and they weren't going anywhere. The government okay. that Reagan supported continued killing civilians by the hundreds in response to this. This is shades of La Matanza. Just as V was hitting the air, the government was killing union leaders and it would take until 1997 to recognize peace throughout the country to the point where the truth commissions could actually be set up.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And this is the war that Johnson's miniseries starts out with. He clearly is watching and reading the news, and he represents this very struggle in the opening scene of V. But it feels more that it's a timely thing that fits in with his dichotomy of unyielding resistance versus military overwhelming superiority rather than here's fascists and here's communists. Quote, yeah. to the heroism of the resistance fighters, past, present, and future, this work is respectfully dedicated. Mm-hmm. This is the present. Okay. These are the resistance fighters that he's talking about, and he shows them in the first scene. Wow. Okay. Johnson was highlighting a very real conflict to service the conceptual point that he was making but he was far more interested in using old symbolism to point loudly to the idea of fascism. And it can't happen here. Far less about American intervention and collaboration in El Salvador, despite his featuring it in the first scene, in essence, as often happens with our authors, Johnson fell over backward in the same way that John Carpenter did with they live.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting how his framing of Mm -hmm. that and his Mm -hmm. particular lens on that reveals a very significant level of privilege. It does. Yeah. Like it's like, it's really easy for him as a, an American specifically. Mm-hmm. An American sci-fi writer. Yeah. Well, yeah. an American television writer. He didn't want to be pigeonholed as an SF writer, but yeah, as a, as an American, as an American writer of entertainment mm-hmm. um, who was living comfortably enough that as you said in our last episode, he never talked about any kind of financial struggle. Right. Um, he was in a position to view these folks in a non ideological lens, mm-hmm. you know, that they're they were they were resisting against power when it was like, okay, no, we are we are literally dirt poor farmers who have been oppressed for forever by feudal overlords, you know. It, yep, it's it's an interesting i mean looking at it from a meta level this many years later it's it's an interesting study in um well in paradigm and and in in separation from what it is that you're that you're writing about mhm you know yeah um yeah i w- while you were Ex- expressing what a complete and utter shit show that was mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah um I, you know I, I was thinking okay so so the fmln were were ideologically mm-hmm. leftist meanwhile at the same time there was a leftist resistance fighting in el salvador in nicaragua
3: mm-hmm.
0: which had been funneling money To Honduras. Oh, we're going to get to that. The Honduran War. We're going to get to that. Okay. Yeah. 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 The Contras and the Sandinistas. Yes. Yes. Was the kind of reversal of that?
3: Yeah.
1: Because you had a. Well, you you had what happened in Guatemala and what happened in Chile. It's happening in Nicaragua. You had a legally elected government uh, that was too far left for some people. And they started attacking it. Yeah. So, yeah. But we'll get to that. Don't worry. Okay. There's, there's plenty more V to go around. Jesus. So, okay. Now, both Carpenter and Johnson uh, had a perspective that they were writing from. Carpenter was specifically critiquing the Reagan era, if you recall, episodes yes. 150 and 151. Yes. Johnson was specifically avoiding present politics, though using them as a backdrop and going with his It Can't Happen Here themes. Yeah. Though he did so by co-opting a whole bunch of history. Um... Let's look now to the scientists in the miniseries who are being delegitimized while they're following a leader or, or while following a leader who wants to take over other places to harvest their resources. Okay. At, at one point, Donovan asks Martin. Martin is the fifth columnist. He says, how did someone like that get to be your leader anyway? And Martin responds, charisma, circumstances, promises. Not enough of us spoke out to question him until it was too late. It happens on your planet, doesn't it?
0: Ooh. On July 29th, 1921,
1: Hitler became chairman of his party and renamed it the NSDAP, due largely to his ability to make rousing speeches. On April 1st, 1924, Hitler turned his trial for the failed insurrection into a platform to get his ideas out there. And though he spends the rest of the year in a really soft jail, he's gotten his message out and has others carrying out plenty of brutalizing violence, largely attacking leftists whom Europe seems to really not mind getting killed. In 1928, the NSDAP only gets about 3% of the vote in the Reichstag. Very easy to ignore a small political arm. In uh, 1930, January 23rd, William Frick became the first Nazi to hold a position of any note whatsoever in the German government when he became the minister of the interior for Thuringia, a thoroughly unimportant province in German history. I know because I... What is it? Thuringia. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, Which I looked it up. Ain't nothing happened there of much note. Um, July 16th, 1930, Heinrich Brüning, uh, it's got an umlaut over the U, Mm -hmm. uh, who's in charge of the right-leaning coalition of the Reichstag. He's unable to secure the votes necessary to put forward his deflationary budget in the face of the worldwide depression, which is hitting Germany harder than most owing to the Treaty of Versailles. So he invokes Article 48. Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution states, quote, If public security and order are seriously disturbed or endangered within the German Reich, the President of the Reich may take measures necessary for the restoration, intervening, if need be, with the assistance of the armed forces. For this purpose, he may suspend for a while, in whole or in part, the fundamental rights provided in Articles 114, 115, 117, 118, 123, 124, and 153. It's a super dangerous precedent that nobody is super clear on yet. And at that point, nobody really saw the Nazis or Adolf Hitler as a threat. On September 14th, 1931, the unemployment rate in Germany is painfully rising, which allows Hitler and the Nazis to make promises due to those circumstances and uh, grow to 18.4% of the Reichstag, making it the second largest party in the Reichstag. October 1931, rightists suggest another coalition that includes Nazis. Hitler agrees. Now, by this point, Thompson had interviewed and warned the world about Hitler, but nobody's listening. January 1932, industrialists reach out to Hitler because they think he'd be a good ally that they can control. April 10th, 1932, Hindenburg beats Hitler on the second ballot, but Hitler came in a strong second on both ballots. April 13th, 1932, Bruning banned the essay from marching may 30th 1932 bruning was forced to resign as president of the government in a bit of a problem with a conflict of interest and his whole cabinet resigned in protest to his not pushing forward it's fun and complex but it's too long for this podcast at least this episode anyway hindenburg becomes president and appoints von Papen chancellor June 16th, 1932, the S.A. ban was lifted. They can now march in the streets again. In August 31st, 1932, Goering, another Nazi, is president of the Reichstag and will eventually help to push von Papen out. December 2nd, 1932, von Papen is forced out as chancellor. General Kurt von Schlescher is a super rightist and he becomes chancellor. January 30th, 1933, von Papen maneuvers von Schleser out and convinces Hindenburg that Hitler should be chancellor and himself vice chancellor. That way they can control Hitler, like we're on either side of him, and get the industrialists on their side because they support Hitler because they could control him. Luckily, after that, everyone listened to Thompson and put a stop to all of it and everything went great afterwards. August, <laughs> August August 2nd, 1934, Hitler merges the president and chancellor positions and has already had the backing of the Enabling Act that made him dictator for four years. I'm sure that Donovan, speaking to his mom, quote, you always said it couldn't happen here. Then one day we woke up and we were living in a fascist state, end quote, is totally irrelevant to what I've just listed and nothing like it was said at all to anyone in Germany at the time. So that's the leader. Now let's talk about the uniforms. The youth brigade that Daniel Bernstein joins in V specifically gives him a brown uniform. This is not accidental. That's your SA connection right there. The brown shirts. Yeah. Like I said, I'm going from least to most obvious, right? So it's it's going to get real easy here. In December 1934, the German government passed the law against malicious attacks on state and property. It outlawed, quote, malicious rabble-rousing remarks or those indicating base mentality. <sighs> Wasn't there something about like, hey, you can't desecrate statues during the summer of 2020? Yeah. So this this law also said, quote, whoever purposefully makes or circulates a statement of a factual nature which is untrue or grossly exaggerated, or which may seriously harm the welfare of the Reich or of a state, or the reputation of the national government, or of a state government, or of parties or organizations supporting these governments, is to be punished, provided that no more severe punishment is decreed in other regulations. With the statement uh, or with imprisonment of up to two years, and if he makes or spreads the statement publicly, with imprisonment of not less than three months. If serious damage to the Reich or state has resulted from this deed, penal servitude may be impo- imposed. Whoever commits an act through negligence uh, will be punished with
3: imprisonment of up to three months or by fine. Yeah.
2: Alphonse Heck, who was later interviewed about his activity in the Hitler Youth, said
1: of his father's railings against the government to his own parents in front of Alphonse. He says, quote, in retrospect, I think it was the last time my father railed against the regime in front of me. He wasn't much of a drinker, but when he had a few too many, he had a tendency to shout down everyone else, not a small feat amongst the men in my family. You mark my words, mother, he yelled. That goddamned Australian house painter is going to kill us all before he's through conquering the world. And then his baleful eye fell on me. They are going to bury you in this goddamn monkey suit, the Hitler Youth Uniform. My boy. Alphonse's grandmother chided her son because she had a very real fear that her grandson would turn in her son. Quote, why don't you leave him alone? Du dummer narr, which is German for you stupid fool. And watch your mouth. You want to end up in the KZ, which is the concentration camps. Alphonse later mused, quote, my grandmother had every reason to warn him about talking loosely for his classification as politically unreliable. Surely would have sent him to a KZ had anyone reported his remarks, even within the family. But there was a, there were also two of our farmhands at the table, and Hans, the younger of the two, had recently announced his decision to apply for party membership. He had ambitions to attend an agricultural school and knew full well that party membership would help him get in. Perhaps, luckily for my father, Hans was getting pretty drunk himself, although I doubt he would have reported my father had he been stone sober. Despite the fact that I later attained a high rank in the Hitler Youth, which required me to be especially vigilant, I never considered my father to be dangerous
2: to our new order. I merely thought him a fool who had long since been left behind. Daniel
1: absolutely uses his newfound power to attain prestige within the visitors organization and among other kids. But his grandfather who lived through the Holocaust repudiates him harshly when Daniel says that he'll use his position to force Robin to marry him under threat of turning them into the visitors for being a family of scientists. And after Daniel's parents are questioned and tortured and returned home, their grandfather is now dead. They live in fear of saying anything that Daniel will inform on. The uniforms that the visitors use. Yeah. yeah. So there's your essay. There's your Hitler youth. The uniforms that the visitors use are, well, they're uniforms, right? They're almost entirely the same shade of red that we see George von Trapp ripping up in the sound of music. I'm sorry, Georg. Um, and they definitely cut a nice triangular figure. But the calf length boots, the cape, the caps, the belt, and the chevrons that denote rank coming from the neck down the obliques in a more pronounced version of the ribbons of recognition that German troops would wear on the Wehrmacht, they're all jet black. So is their gun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so is their gun, which resembles a Luger, but it's scienced up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So their gun is also Luger-like, but it's, you know, a little more science-y. And the insignia they use is uh, is black on red. I'll try to describe it, and then I'll, I'll find you a picture. Uh, a thin black rounded rectangle uh, going north to south, rounded on both ends. A small space between that and a horizontal rectangle of the same kind, but half as long that extends from the northernmost spot eastward. Same from the southernmost spot westward. And so if you measure the width and the length, they'd be pretty close to the same. Then starting directly above the southern horizontal half line, there's a simple solid black dot. Its diameter is the same width as the horizontal line. You have the same size dot starting below the northern half line. So based on that description and uh, I, I'm sure you could be looking it up right now. Yeah. So based on that. Oh, OK. So based on that, and I I will show you just really
2: quick um, the insignia.
3: Um, Based on these two things, there we go.
2: So based on all of that description and what I've just shown you, and I had to pause it because I didn't want people to hear me clicking and clacking. uh, What does it look like?
3: Yeah, (laughs) it's yes, it does. (laughs) Right,
2: like they're not going to get sued by the Nazi party for for product infringement.
3: But that's it. (laughs) Good point good point. Mhm.
2: Oh, they always had the German cross. They never had the swastikas.
3: Yep. Yes. Right. Right.
2: Yeah. So this would satisfy that, right? So now let's get on to the
1: scientists. I keep promising the scientists. Here's the scientists. On April 8th, 1933, the German student union published the 12 theses calling for a pure German language and a pure German culture achieved only through burning and cleansing the literature of Jewish intellectualism, which bridges the gap from science through literature, through Marxism and attacks on anything not considered hella straight enough. The very first things burnt. We're actually an attack on the Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft. This institute. I can't believe I can say that word. But if you give me the word for eggs in French, I'm fucked.
3: Well, (laughs) yeah. If
1: I well, because because I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to pronounce the, the V. E. S. When you add the S to the V. E. So I think it ends up being.
2: Whereas one is if. Yeah, it just so. But sexual wissenschaft, no
1: problem. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, uh, this had been the leading source of academic and medical research in Europe and the US and possibly the world on the issues of gender, trans identity, and whatnot. By burning these twenty thousand books and journals from the institute's library, the German Student Union, entirely with the support of Goebbels and the Ministry of Propaganda, destroyed unique studies and works
2: on intersexuality, homosexual, transgender, and other related topics. They s-
3: no, I, I literally the next sentence
1: was how much they set it back by. So good. Um, It's also very likely that Dora Richter, the very first known and documented transgender woman who underwent gender confirmation surgery, was killed during this burning, although some reports have it that she was arrested afterward and died in custody. Either way, attacks on transgender folks were at the van of the Nazi attack on marginalized groups, which led specifically to eliminating the people who could have and would have called out what the Nazis were doing as they were doing it the following literatures were also outlawed in Nazi Germany, making critiques by such folks uh, all but impossible. Uh, They got rid of porn, all books degrading German purity, pop literature that was too bourgeois, too superficial, too silly, any writing that was damaging to the folk, literature that was too decadent, anything on sex that focused on individual pleasure rather than duty, anything that advocated bloodless, constructivist, or decadent art, anything egalitarian, anything that history doesn't center at the German, doesn't center the German folk and its exceptionalism, as well as exceptional leaders, any history that explains uh, history through a study of the masses, no liberal literature, no democratic literature, no pacifist literature, anything that is about the Weimar Republic, anything Marxist, anything communist, anything Bolshevik, anything that denies racial structuralism that sets the Aryans at the top. Anything written by traders, anything written by foreigners who think that they can attack Germany through literature and anything by any Jewish author, no matter what the field. This led to the burning of over 80 percent of the school libraries and 75 percent of the scientific
2: libraries in Poland after they conquered. Yeah, now I'm going to date this podcast a little bit.
1: There is a, a middle school in Texas that is named after a guy who learned how to read in his late nineties. Uh, he, his name is George Dawson. Mid- George Dawson middle school just banned his autobiography from the middle school library that bears his name. Yeah. So luckily it can't happen here now. Combine this with the Hitler Youth, and you have a national policy enacted that is specifically aimed at encouraging brutality against those deemed not of the folk, especially Jews. You also had the burning of the Reichstag blamed on communists, which was quickly accreted to include anybody Jewish. To be one was to be the other, therefore any conspiracy imagined or discovered by communists was also a Jewish plot. This exiled many writers, many artists, and many people who are important to this podcast, scientists. From V, quote, and and actually, before I get into this, because I'm going to quote to you a bunch of dialogue that talks
2: about this. Is there anything that you wanted to reflect on in, in everything that I just brought up?
3: Mm hmm. hmm Yeah. hmm Mhm. Mhm. Yeah,
2: you you banned a book that you were never going to read in the first place. <laughs>
3: And you're bringing everybody else down to your level by legislation. Yeah. Yeah. hmm Mhm. No. No, self-reflection. Yep. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not going to claim that they're threatened by it, though. That's the thing.
1: Like, I think you're begging the question, quite honestly. They're claiming that they are the guardians of purity and of children. So, yeah, no. See, you've proven that you're weak because you you disagree with them.
2: And I think that's the loop that they get themselves into. Yeah, but you won't because you're there with your kid and you don't have a two by
1: four and you can't afford to stay in jail. They're using the rules of society
2: and politeness against you. That's what they do until they run the entire public square.
3: Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So from
1: the TV series V. Uh here's here's the dialogue. Uh quote, the world was shocked today when Nobel prize winner Dr. Morris Jankowski of the Brussels Biomedical Institute in Belgium held press conference today or to reveal the existence of an international conspiracy against the visitors. And then it goes to Jankowski. It came to my attention when Dr. Rudolf Metz in California asked to speak with me on what he called urgent confidential matters. Other colleagues of mine are also being approached by scientists, primarily biomedical and anthropological scientists from many nations who are apparently a part of this insidious conspiracy. Their plans quite simply are to seize control of several motherships belonging to the visitors. They tried hard to convince me that it was, this was to protect the human race or to keep such powers from the military on our planet. I do believe, however, that their motivation is by far more personal. Then Jankowski signed his statement listing those he claims tried to bring him into this conspiracy. When word began to spread of the Jankowski statement, the international scope revealed itself as scores of scientists around the world came forward to admit that they had been approached or actually confessed that they were part of the conspiracy. Seen here is Dr. Jacques Duvier, Duvivier, Duvivier. Yeah, Uh, also, yep. Right. They're, yeah, they're the problem, not me. Uh, their language has been around far longer than I, but yeah, they're the problem. Yeah. Dr. Jacques de Vouvier, uh also a Nobel laureate, physician, and leading biochemist in France, who was detained by the Surete and has confessed to his involvement, naming other scientists as his co conspirators. Then after the news, there's a specific scene of a scientist who works with Julie and Ben. Ben is the brother of Elias that I talked about last week. Two biologists who joined the resistance later, having his office searched. It's a lie. It's a vicious lie. You don't need a warrant. Search my files. There's nothing. You'll find nothing. What's that? No, I never saw that. No, it's not true. I don't know how this got here. It's a lie, I tell you. And then you cut back to the news while Robin Maxwell's dad, the scientist who lives next door to David, is discussing uh, the several of his friends who are missing. Uh, and so you hear, and many other scientists, and he says they, they simply, they've simply vanished, which, which some think lends credence to the charges brought against them. Christine Walsh, press secretary for visitor Supreme Commander John had this to stay. So Christine is the journalist who is now fully co-opted. The visitors were shocked to learn of this conspiracy and fearful of the chaos which could possibly result. Not only would their own needs be impaired, but all the benefits they plan to share with us could be endangered. Scientific seminars planned for next week will be postponed. Then you cut to the Berkowitz family watching TV. And because it's still too early to determine how many scientists are involved, the UN has agreed to visitor requests that all scientists and their family members must register their whereabouts with local authorities. Computers will be used to verify their registration. And then you cut to Abraham, the grandfather, talking to a friend who says, quote, Abraham, don't get so wound up. Nothing's going to happen to you or your family. They're not doctors or biologists or even scientists. You're not involved. Anyway, it's going to pass. And he says, that's what I said in 1938 back in Berlin. But this is different. Is it? And then it literally cuts to his grandson, David, walking with a visitor wearing his new brown uniform. And then back to the news. The Supreme Commander wants to make it clear that while he's sure all scientists all over aren't part of this conspiracy, it's difficult to ascertain which of them may not be. While police have scoured scientific files for facts on the conspiracy, startling evidence is being found that many scientists have actually had major breakthroughs in research, which they've suppressed. Senate Medical Affairs Committee Chairman Raymond Burke had this to say. And then he says, yes, indeed, I do have evidence that revolutionary cancer treatments do exist and have existed for some time, along with many other breakthroughs, which apparently our scientific friends kept quiet about and haven't shared with us. Why would they do that? I won't speculate, except to say that there's a lot of money to be made in research
3: grants. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and there's a
2: lot of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a politician saying it to gain
1: political support. He's, he's seeing a crisis and he's seeing where he can grift. And on top of that, you hear all these scientists who are coming forward um, and saying, yeah, I was part of the conspiracy. Or, I mean, you've got this kangaroo thing going on, right? So then there's a few scenes uh, showing that people are turning their backs on the scientists. They're spurning them. They're canceling plans because they don't want to be seen with a scientist. A girl comes home from school having gotten into a fight because someone called her dad a dirty scientist. And among the first who join the resistance in V are as a result, scientists and journalists and clergy and criminals. And I, I just want to make sure that we have this list down scientists journalists clergy and criminals because this this very much apes the makeup of plenty of resistance and partisan movements during world war ii in europe many intellectuals took up the cause of resistance and partisanship militaristically so in western europe whereas in eastern europe it was largely underground supply and information chains that fed necessary information to eastern european partisan groups still the makeup was similar clergy criminals intellectuals and journalists and if you look at the number of ghetto and concentration camp uprisings The networks that existed before and after them, the amount of expatriates who came back and fought and died against the Nazis who occupied their homeland, it's easy to see that such a resistance as that, as well as what we saw in the Salvadoran Civil War starting in 79, was definitely something that Johnson would pull from for his writings. Johnson didn't want to make this a science fiction miniseries because he feared being pigeonholed, but when the network was thirsty to make money off the post-ET craze, and the post-Empire Strikes Back craze, he realized he could tell the same story just with aliens instead of actual Nazis. And he didn't seem to have a specifically positive ideology, though. He was more conceptual in his approach, despite the miniseries releasing on May Day. That seems to be more of a coincidence than anything else. And again, it got a 40 share for the two nights that is on. It was huge, and NBC actually got more eyes on their network than cbs or abc for those two nights which was
2: unthinkable and unthinkable in nbc prior to that show yeah i'm gonna stop
1: i'm gonna stop there because the next episode's gonna be about the next mini series they made based on this because they did make it because the success of this they were like fuck let's do it again but there's gonna be a lot of differences too like This is the only one that Michael Johnson had an actual creative hand in. (laughs) Yeah, now he helped pick the writing team for the next one, but but we'll get into what happened. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, you see this like it's very clear he's writing from a point of view and he's writing from an ideology and he's pulling in stuff.
2: But it's not like he like I said, he's falling over backward on it, right?
3: hmm Right. And anti fascist. It it is anti fascist. Yeah. hmm. Right. 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 Yeah, well, and I would also
2: say, like, the only time, yeah, the only time
1: you see a politician doing something is when he's hopping on a bandwagon of things. There's no politician sitting there going, we could use this. There's there's nothing like that. If there was something like that, I'd be like, okay, he's calling out right wing
2: stuff. But no, there's nothing like that.
3: Sure. Yep. This is after he gets shot.
2: So he's very popular. Yeah. He's not the strike breaker. He's,
3: he's the, you know, charming, doddering old man. True. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not like Reagan,
1: right. It's not like he wasn't a fucking monster, but he still got 49 out of 50 states in the
3: 1984 election. Like, goddamn.
2: Right. Like the way that Alan Moore saw Maggie Thatcher. Yeah.
1: And by the way, she's immensely popular after an assassination attempt goes wrong. And she she and Ronnie run and, and they run and gun
3: for roughly the same amount of time. Yeah. Mm hmm. Sure. hmm Yeah, that's exactly true. hmm Yep. Oh yeah. Mhm. Yep. Yeah. To so much neo fascist bullshit. hmm Right. This is true. Very true.
2: But who who really liked it can't happen here? which
3: yeah Mhm Right Right Right. Oh, yeah. hmm You know, it's the opening the fridge
2: and not finding the milk when it's standing right in front of you. so
1: (laughs) so it's it's the having a perfect perfect ceiling for plaid and just not doing it it's
2: (laughs) so all righty well uh that's what you've gleaned is there anything you want people
3: to read Okay. Okay. I'm.
2: I'm. I'm gonna recommend actually. Uh, two things. One, you
1: can find V. Um, I don't know if it's you have to rent it or not. Cause I'm a little spoiled. Cause I have Prime. Um, but you can find the original mini series both on Tubi, which I know you can do for free, and I think on Prime for free. But do the one that's for free. Uh, so that is is what I'm going to recommend uh, mostly. But also, um, because we were talking Nazis so much, uh, I would like to also recommend uh, another book, and it's called. Um, I've recommended this before um, as a please go order this. But now mine has come and I've started reading it. It's called All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days by Rebecca Donner. It's the true story of the American woman at the heart of the German resistance to Hitler. So there's this woman from South Dakota uh, and she's living in Germany, translating stuff like that. She joins a resistance and she is moving documents back and forth and she's helping fight Hitler from within. In 1943, she gets captured by the Gestapo uh, and uh, she gets sentenced to six years of hard labor in a concentration camp. Hitler steps in and goes, no, 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 no. Behead her tomorrow. She is the only woman ever having the only American woman ever having been ordered, executed by Hitler. And she died. So it's written by her great
2: niece. Yeah so i say read that shit
3: uh so yeah 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 so uh
2: anybody want to find you online
3: where should they look Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: let's see Duh, harmony two H's in the middle on Twitter and Instagram, probably the easiest
1: places to find me. Also, if you are in the Sacramento area within 60 miles and you want to come down to Luna's cafe on either, let's see, I think this is going to drop after, but just in case October 7th, November 4th or December 2nd, uh, I will be there with my crew capital punishment running our pun tournament. For over six years now, Justine Lopez has now joined us, uh, stepping us up to the next level. Um, And it's going to be an amazing show. Bring proof of vaccination as well as $10 and come check out an amazing show. So that's
2: that's where you can find me. So for A Geek History of Time, I'm Damian Harmony.